They're iconic plants of the American Southwest. Joshua trees, the saguaro cactus, lawns? The first two exemplify the hardy beauty of life in the desert. The last one represents human hubris. And as the region continues to thirst through what looks like the worst drought in 1,200 years there, those plants are now probably endangered, even lawns. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's Wednesday, July 28, 2021. The CDC says fully vaccinated people should go back to wearing masks indoors in most of the U.S. A Hong Kong court has ruled that the slogan, Liberate Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Times, is now basically illegal there. And a poll of 2,000 eaters has determined that Great Britain's favorite ice cream flavor is... Vanilla. Tip, tip, cheery, hell no. Today, in episode three of Drought Week, we'll take a journey through the American Southwest, to Las Vegas, down to Arizona's Sonoran Desert, and through California's Mojave Desert. We speak to scientists, folklorists, and politicians about their efforts to understand the plants and animals affected by this historic drought. Our first stop, Las Vegas, Nevada. This month, Sin City tied its record for the hottest ever there, 117 degrees. Nearby Lake Mead, which provides almost all of its water, is at its lowest point ever. We reached out to Assemblymember Howard Watts III in Clark County, Nevada, and the cicadas were out. We spoke to him about one form of vegetation that's not yet in peril in the American Southwest, lawns. From the fields where the Coachella Music Festival happens to golf courses in wealthy communities, acres upon acres of bright green, non-native grass exist across the American Southwest. That's nice and all when you have a lot of water to irrigate it. But it's kind of hard to justify in drought times. So last month, the Nevada State Legislature passed a law that bans ornamental turf in the Las Vegas metro area. That is, lawns with no functional purpose other than to look pretty. Now, nearly 4,000 acres of grass must be torn out by 2026. That will save about 10% of the city's current water supply. But lawns for homes, parks, and golf courses are still legal for now. Howard Watts III was the bill's sponsor. Welcome to The Times. Hi, thanks for having me, Gustavo. Glad to be here. How bad is the drought right now in Nevada? Uh, the, the drought in Nevada and across the West is extremely severe. A few years ago, we had a long drought. It lasted four years. And so a lot of people are kind of confused as to how it could be so bad so fast now. But we never fully recovered. The soil is extremely dry. Here in Nevada, we get the least amount of rain of any state in the country. Las Vegas gets the least amount of precipitation of any major city. We're already kind of on the edge. And now basically our entire state is in uh, a state of drought. Lake Mead, where we get most of our water from through the Colorado River, is at the lowest level it's been since it was filled. So we're reaching a, a pretty critical level when it comes to drought here in the state. Lawns obviously are not native to the American Southwest. So who would be the lawn lobby, the groups or people opposed to right now, at least removing ornamental turf? When you talk about some of the folks that we're looking to get to, you know, HOAs, uh, homeowner associations are a big one. We see certain communities that they like the way those lawns look. Uh, they believe that they're attractive, that they add value to the community. And so there are there are still medians in the middle of streets or large slanted pieces of lawn on the outside of communities where no one's walking their dog on that. No one's playing on that. The common phrase we use is, 
if it's only being stepped on when somebody comes to mow it, that's that's non-functional turf. And so some of those communities, that's a big one. Golf courses, now they've converted a lot of their water use to use basically gray water, um, and they've done some things to reduce their water use, but there's still some strips of turf that could be reduced there. And then there's some office parks too. Um, you know, 20 years ago, fountains were the big thing. Everyone wanted to put a fountain somewhere down here in Las Vegas, and we've kind of moved away from that. But there are still some folks that want to have those grassy lawn strips. Um, and again, we're talking about grass that no one is using. These aren't parks or, or other areas for recreation. and They are just used for kind of their eye appeal. At what point then, what do you think will finally convince not just folks in Las Vegas with personal lawns, but then other people across the American Southwest that, hey, lawns, no, no. Every analysis and model we've seen indicates that with the changing climate, it's getting hotter, it's getting drier. And so more often than not, we're going to see conditions like this. And we need to adjust our entire paradigm, our thoughts of how we use water to adjust to this new reality and re recognize that even if we get a good year, that's not enough to get us back to where we need to be. So we really need to triple down on conservation measures. And I think that passing this bill is a great first step. You should you should tell these folks, hey, you know, rip out your lawn and we'll give you free cactus. You can eat the cactus and get the prickly pear, too. You know, let's plant some trees. Let's plant some mesquite trees and get some uh, mesquite flower going. You know, there's a lot of other options. Um, Palo Verdes, cacti that are beautiful um, and that are drought resilient that I think are a better direction to go than, than grass. Thank you so much for this interview, Assembly Member. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Now we go to Arizona, the American home of the saguaro cactus. It's what the National Park Service calls the symbol of the American West. We'll have several guides. Our first, Michael Madre, my friend, anthropologist and University of Arizona professor Maribel Alvarez. We are surrounded by this magnificent inhabitants of the desert that are saguaro cactus. Can't find it anywhere else. This is their home. So this is literally the most iconic and enduring sense of place marker that you're ever going to find. The first time I traveled to Tucson, as I was thinking of going to graduate school in the early 90s, as soon as I got out of the airport, the first thing that I saw was a saguaro. And, you know, you can't help but notice them. They stand tall. They are these incredible beings. And later on, as I began to study the culture and the sense of place, I began to hear that the indigenous people of the Southwest, of the Tucson of the Sonoran Desert, the Tohono O'odham people, actually considered them relatives, considered the Sawaro a living being, like a person, and have an incredible amount of respect for the role that the Sawaro plays in their origin stories, but also in the cycle of the year when the rain comes and the saguaro fruit then appears. Uh, in a cactus, you see a flower, you see a beautiful flower, and then you see this red fruit just burst with incredible generosity for birds and animals that come to gather the seeds. And then when the saguaro dies, and, and, and it dies after 
dozens or hundreds of years sometimes, people use the ribs inside. There's an entire system of ribs in spongy materials that are like carrying the water. That's how they're able to sustain themselves. It's like they're a big sponge inside with this beautiful shaft. I became uh, intrigued by the stories of how is it that people, indigenous people, can regard a plant as a relative, as through the mechanism of kinship. Then Tohono O'odham people tell the story of a boy whose mother is so preoccupied with playing one of the traditional games that women play, the toka. And she's just so into this game that she's neglecting the little boy. And he goes off into the desert and he wanders. And as he's wandering the desert, sort of a little lost, a little sad, he is actually false and Coyote comes and eats him. But Coyote doesn't want to be found, so he buries the little kid's bones on the ground. And lo and behold, those bones become the first saguaro. The saguaro grows out of the body of the boy. So you begin to see in the story that then when the saguaro erupts, you begin to think about the boy's relationship to his sense of family, of having been disconnected from his mother. So the story, as it is shared in the Native American context of the Tohono O'odham people, speaks about family obligations, about connections that go unseen and from which new things are born or are generated. The saguaros are tied together with the season of the rains that become really important for the Tohono Autumn's New Year. The rains make possible the, the cultivation of bean squash, the corn that will provide through the next summer months of heat enough for nourishment for the rest of the year. It's sort of the, the Christmas tree of the desert in a very natural way. It, it brings you those gifts. It announces sort of new things that are coming. How I came to understand the story of the saguaro, the significance, also speaks in, in my life about the responsibility we have to learn, <laughs> to ask questions, to be curious with respect about the places we have it, because we're not the first ones showing up. We'll have more after this break. Our next Aguaro Sage, David Yetman. He's a research social scientist at the University of Arizona and co-author of the book, The Saguaro Cactus, A Natural History. Yetman served for nine years as host for the PBS documentary television series, The Desert Speaks. The key to the saguaro survival is that it has the ability to store huge amounts of water. Basically, a saguaro cactus is a tower of water. And they can do that in a dry climate because they're very adept at absorbing water, even a small rainfall of a few hundredths of an inch. They can pull from that rain, they can pull water into their system. Their roots are near the surface, so they're very, very 
clever at doing that. And once it gets inside their system, they can store it because they have a protective covering called a cuticle that prevents the kind of evaporation that you would find in other kinds of plants. And they grow really slow, right? They grow very slowly for the first 30 or 40 years. You know, it's possible that they grow up to an inch a year after that. I have one in my front yard that's a yard tall and is 33 years old since I planted it. And it was about six inches then. So that shows you they don't grow very quickly. Um, If you give them a lot of water in a desert condition with well-drained soil, they will grow a lot faster than that. Others that are the same age have gotten up to 10 feet, 12 feet tall in that time. And the saguaros, you know, in the Sonoran Desert, since there's so little water, a lot of it is predicated on what in Arizona is called the monsoon season. Oh, the monsoon. And even as we speak, uh, I happen to be sitting in southwestern New Mexico and a monsoon is developing right over us. So I, I hope we're lucky enough to hear thunder and maybe <laughs> even see lightning. But yes, they are a monsoon based cre- uh, creature. They evolved probably eight to 10 million years ago when this climate developed. And that means that we had summer rains, monsoonal rains, that, that's a moist air coming in from the Gulf of Mexico or the Gulf of California, and arrives in, an, in thunderstorms that leave a lot of water very quickly. That enables the seeds to germinate very quickly. But they also have required in their history Uh, winter rains, not a lot, but enough to where they can absorb water and store it for the upcoming season. They flower in mid-April to mid-May, and those flowers then attract pollinators, which then pollinate the flowers to produce seed. And the fruits come in June and early July. And those fruits are coinciding the maturity of those fruits with the monsoons. When the seeds hit the ground, they, are, they have evolved to be waiting for that rain. If the rain doesn't come, the seeds won't make it. Last summer, the rains did not come. And for several summers in recent years, we have had very poor recruitment of saguaros. Botanists say recruit, which means you get young ones. You can see by the, by the numbers of uh, saguaros of different heights when the good seasons of recruitment are when you're in the Sonoran Desert. So you've been studying them for two decades now. You co-wrote a whole book about them. But are you seeing things now that are starting to worry you? What is most concerning to me has been the lack of water for storage, which means by the time we got into June this year, with basically no rain in the last year, they were looking very skinny. Now, saguaros are like accordions in that they can very quickly take up rain and expand. Their ribs will actually expand. But That did not happen last summer. And when they begin to get that kind of stress, then they do one of two things. This year, they put out a huge number of flowers and a lot of fruits in a desperate attempt, hoping that the rain would come. This year it did. But the other problem is when it's been that dry for that long, a rain comes, they expand rapidly, and they become top-heavy. And if a wind then comes, and wind were to come right now, if we were to get a monsoon storm, a wind can topple them over because they come so top-heavy and their roots have been weakened by the drought. So we'll see. But they are certainly, they are creatures that are attuned to those historic, prehistoric, ancient uh, climate um, fluctuations in the Sonoran Desert. And when those change, they're stressed.
what's the feature of the saguaro? Well, you know, it, it's it's hard to you know really predict because they have evolved over millions of years and they're very tough critters. Um, this year, because this rain may have given us a year of good recruitment. The last year of really good recruitment was 1983, when we had floods similar to what we're getting now. Uh, it was in October, but in July as well. If we get a few years like that, a, a crop will come along. And I can go out in the Tucson Mountains, west of Tucson right now, and I can look at the saguaros and I can tell you, this group came from 1967, that group came from 1941, this group came from 1983, because there were a whole bunch developed grew, germinated and grew in that in those years. And they're a certain height, all within a, a certain uh, uh, limitation of themselves. So I don't want to count them out, but they need abundant summer rain and good winter rain in general for the species to continue to prosper. Don't we all? Thank you so much for this interview. Thank you for inviting me. Finally, back to California. In this part of our journey, we're joined by my LA Times colleague, Steve Lopez. We spoke about how Steve traveled 130 miles east of Los Angeles this past March to Joshua Tree National Park. He and his wife wanted to look at the spring wildflowers, but found none. Curious, Steve called up famed desert ecologist Jim Cornette and asked him what's up. Here's Jim. Once the superintendent of Joshua Tree National Park asked me, uh, what advice I might have for him as he moves into that new position. This was a, about 10 years ago, and I said, never name a national park after a plant, because probably in 50 years, there will be almost no Joshua trees in Joshua Tree National Park. Steve wrote a column about the experience, and well, we're doomed. Steve, welcome to The Times. Yes, we are doomed, unfortunately. It doesn't look too good out there in the desert. Uh, yeah, yeah. For people not lucky enough to live in California, describe Joshua Tree National Park and its namesake star, the Joshua Trees. Well, these are, um, they're, they're crazy looking trees. They look like Mother Nature got together with Dr. Seuss and they had a few too many drinks. <laughs> and this is the tree that Dr. Seuss drew. It's just kind of crazy. It's all over the place. It's limbs, it's clusters of leaves thrust at crazy angles. But it's beautiful too. It's just a gorgeous tree. You don't find it in too many parts of the world and a place where it has been for hundreds of years, the Joshua Tree National Park. And it is a huge, huge tourist destination. You know, they've gotten as many as three million people a year driving out to go and look at these trees and the rock formations are beautiful and so is the cactus. But um, the health of these uh, Joshua trees is not looking too good. And that's what uh, Mr. Cornett the ecologist has been studying for a few decades, and um, he's not finding anything too encouraging out there. We have entered a period of climate change where the climate is quite different today than it was 50 years ago. And what that means is that the temperatures are rising, uh, rainfall is declining, and perhaps most importantly for desert environments, the duration and intensity of droughts is increasing I mean, most people would look at that landscape out in the Mojave Desert where there's next to no water and say, yeah, there's no water. It's the desert. That's how it's supposed to be. But when you went out there with Cornette, you saw yourself the effects of the drought that we're going through were already pretty dramatic. Yeah. Well, look, this is a tree that exists out there because they don't need a lot of water. 
but they're not getting even as much water as they used to. And when I looked at the uh, charts, Palm Springs, for instance, averages four or five inches of rain a year. At that point, it had had less than one inch of rain. So this is vegetation that does well without much water, but it does not do very well without no water. And in addition to less rainfall, the temperatures are a little bit hotter. So even when it does rain a little bit, it is so hot that the water evaporates before it can sink in and feed these plants. So the situation is dire. And uh, the most alarming thing he had to say to me was that in the future, if you want to see Joshua trees, it may be that Joshua Tree National Park is not the place to go see them. You'd have to go to cooler, slightly wetter, higher elevations in California. And Jim Cornette, as you said, is this a man who has been seeing this, tracking this, writing about this for decades? As you said, Gustavo, I was going to be out there in the spring. I had something to do. And I thought, OK, spring is wildflower time. And I knew that it had not rained much, and I had read that there wasn't much, but I thought, maybe there are flowers somewhere. Come on, I've got to be able to find a flower in the desert. So I did a little research, and I saw in the Desert Sun this story saying that it was a really, really bad year, and they quoted Jim. So I called Jim, not knowing his background. And, I mean, this guy, he's a great character. He's, he's uh, I think, about 70 years old, and he's like a little kid out there. I mean, he's written an entire book on woodpeckers. And what he's doing with Joshua Trees is he's got several study sites where he goes each year and he takes a look, he measures how high they are, and he keeps doing these annual comparisons, and he's finding that uh, each year more and more of them are dead or they're suffering, and it's attributable, of course, to climate change. But there's more to it than that. When I first went out with Jim, we were walking through, I guess it's the southern entrance area to Joshua Tree National Park. And he's got a study area there, not of Joshua trees, but Ocotillo plants, which he also studies. It's this kind of gangly, spindly plant that can be 10, 15, 20 feet high. And it's got some needles on it. And um, it has a beautiful, rich green leaf and a gorgeous red flower. But The plants out there didn't have much of any of that. And as we were walking through checking on them at one of his study sites, he saw a nest about the size of a basketball made with twigs, branches, whatnot, that was built into the base of an Ocotillo. And Jim stood there and he wondered about this and what could it be? And he was thinking it through and he looked all around and he saw that cactus was dead, which as we know, doesn't need much water. And he said, this is the kind of nest that a wood rat would build. And I've never seen them maybe once, he said, in his lifetime in decades of research built into an Ocotillo. And why would a rat do that? Because it's dying of thirst and of heat. And it built itself a little bit of shade in that tree, thinking that it might survive if ever there was a drop of rain and it could live another week. So we wandered around and saw two or three more of those. And then he said, you know what? There's the cascading effect. These Ocotillo are dying and the whole ecosystem is impacted because what happens every year is that hummingbirds in Mexico cross the border, they come north, they're migrating. And one of their greatest food sources in that area of California is Ocotillo nectar. And without those Ocotillo blooming, 
it means that the hummingbirds might not come. Without wildflowers, it means that seeds won't be dropped. They won't be for, there for birds. They won't be there for rodents. If there aren't enough rodents, then there won't be snakes. There won't be hawks that are feeding on the snakes and the rodents. So this cascading effect is unfortunately the theme of the story that I did and the reporting that I did out there in the desert with Jim. It's pretty gloomy. Yeah, I have to say, I had to stop reading your column when I got to the part about jackrabbits trying to chew through the bark of a Joshua tree just to get at the moisture because they were so thirsty. That's something that's not supposed to happen. They're really frightening. I mean, I grew up along the uh, Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta. And, I mean, we're seeing a transformational climate change. And, um, you know, as as I'm talking to you, Gustavo, I'm thinking, it wasn't that long ago. Anytime I wrote something about climate... I'd get all of these emails from climate change deniers. Yeah. It's, it's BS. There's no evidence for it. You're a sellout. You're writing what your publisher wants you to write. <laughs> no. Wake up. Open your eyes. Take a look. California is changing. It's changing dramatically. And I don't think we have uh, begun to figure out what the broader implications might be on, you know, with agriculture in California. Does it mean that we won't be able to grow certain crops? Does it mean that growers will move to other states. There's so many um, implications here. And it seems to me um, and to the experts I talk to as if we're no longer approaching a tipping point. We're past it now where we're going to see all of these changes become even more dramatic in our lifetimes. Thank you so much for this interview, Steve. Thank you for having me. We'll have more after this break. Now to the Tokyo Olympics. Faster, higher, stronger. And we're not talking about the COVID pandemic. All week, we're hearing from members of the U.S. Olympic squad, all from different sports, all with different dreams, ready to compete against the best in the world. I started shooting with my dad. I remember the first time I received a firearm, and it was when I was eight years old. It was a 22 long rifle. It's semi-automatic, so it can load like five rounds into it, and it's shortened, so that way a little eight-year-old can safely handle it and not be falling over because it's too big. This was after extensive amounts of safety training with my dad, When my parents both felt that they were comfortable with me having something special like this, my dad, he carved the stock himself. He painted it pink and he carved my name in the side of it in cursive with a little heart, which is how I sign my name now. My name is Lexi Lagan. I compete in the women's pistol sports, specifically women's air pistol, as well as women's sport pistol. When I went to college, I went to the University of Utah. I decided, okay, this is an opportunity to make some new friends. Let's sign up for some teams, some clubs, and just get ourselves out there. And I stumbled upon the marksmanship club there. I thought it was going to be similar to the family weekends on the range. It turned into Olympic shooting sports, which I didn't even know existed until that moment. It became a passion very quickly. I started 
really taking this sport seriously in 2015 and tried out for the Olympic team in 2016. I just barely missed it and was pretty disappointed. And that was when I had the moment of realization of this is something that I'm very passionate about, that I really enjoy and I want to pursue further than just in my college career. So the shooting sports in the Olympics, they're mainly about precision. They're about being able to do the exact same thing as accurately as possible over and over again, over a very long span of time. With pistol, there's air pistol and small bore. Uh, for women's air pistol and men's air pistol, it's shot at 10 meters away from the wall. So that's like 30-ish feet and the size of the 10 ring on these targets is about the size of the top of an eraser head or the diameter of an average straw. You need to be shooting that straw from 10 meters away. For women, it's about seven out of 10 times. And you shoot 60 shots in an hour and 15 minutes. And it's a lot of, as I said, standing as still as possible. And this year there is even a mixed team event, which will be one man, one female. And so it's a very exciting extra opportunity for medals for um, a lot of the women in sport. Before that, there was more men's competitions than there were women's competitions. And so this kind of balances out some of those competitions. That way, everybody has more opportunities. It's really something special for women, I think. And it creates a new dynamic between all of the shooting sports. Normally, there's the men's sports and the women's sports. There's no team sports, whereas this creates a kind of a bridge between those two separate entities. The shooting sports, I think in the US, it's a male stereotype sport where I run around and I, I tell my story. And a lot of times that creates a label for me of the shooter girl, because there's not a lot of other shooter girls in certain communities. And it's kind of funny because then you go back to all the other shooter girls at the range and we're all like, yeah, we're all shooter girls. This isn't just a men's sport, this isn't just a women's sport, this is an everybody sport. It doesn't matter if you're tall, short, big, small, man, female, anybody can come in and put up big numbers and be just as competitive as the next person. Wishing all of our athletes the best of luck. Listen to each episode of The Times all the way to the end this week and hear more of the U.S. athletes going for the 2021 Tokyo Olympics gold. And don't forget, there's no such thing as fourth place unless you're a new daily podcast. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, Lake Mead. It's the largest reservoir in the United States, and it's drying out. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn and Denise Guerra. Special thanks to Asal Asanipur and Nani Sara Walker. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rapp. Our intern is Ashley Brown. 
Our engineer is Mario Diaz, and our theme music is by Andrew Epen. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this madre. Gracias.